Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today I'm bringing you part two of a two-part series on the case of Maitrese Richardson. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that first, or this won't make a lot of sense. But let's dig into it. This is part two of the case of Maitrese Richardson. At the end of part one, we heard Dr. Hampton discuss the search for Maitrese, but here are the highlights of that same search according to law enforcement. Investigators showed a photo of Maitrese to Bill Smith, and he did positively identify her as the woman he saw on his property on September 17th. They also searched the area around Bill's house and found tracks from Maitrese's van shoes, which she'd been wearing when she left the jail. And they determined that Maitrese had been running. Now, why was she running? We don't know. It's obviously very possible that when Bill confronted her, she just kind of freaked out and left. But some have speculated that Maitrese may have been running from someone else. These tracks went along the side of Bill's home into the front yard. But because there was such heavy traffic from people and horses, they lost the tracks. Now, in addition to Maitrese's tracks, dogs were also able to pick up her scent near Bill's home. And that led investigators to the front of a home on Cold Canyon Road. This is about a quarter mile east of Bill's home. And they did actually search this house, but nothing of note was found. The ground search for Maitrese ended that day without really any answers. And as we heard Dr. Hampton say, there was no second day of searching like she was told there would be. Not long after this, Maitrese's case was reassigned again, this time to LAPD's Robbery Homicide Division. Officials say this happened because the Homicide Division had better resources than the Missing Persons Unit, not because they considered Maitrese's case to be a homicide. Now, at this point, Maitrese's loved ones had grown very concerned about the investigation and the Lost Hills Department as a whole. They wanted to know why Maitrese was released from jail in the middle of the night with no phone, money, or a car, especially after she was clearly acting odd in that restaurant only a few hours prior. And they also wanted to know something I think a lot of us want to know. Why didn't they have Maitrese undergo any sort of psychological evaluation before her release? Maitrese's parents did end up hiring attorneys, who quickly brought up a number of complaints to the Lost Hills Department and to their watchdog unit, the Office of Independent Review, or OIR. When Lost Hills was questioned about their decision to release Maitrese, they maintained that they didn't do anything wrong. They said Maitrese was completely fine when she was in jail, and they had no legal reason to keep her there. OIR did open an investigation into Lost Hill's handling of Maitrese's arrest and release, but those results wouldn't be available for nearly a year. Meanwhile, LAPD was still investigating. On September 22nd, five days after Maitrese was released from jail, they went to the tow lot and looked through Maitrese's car to see if there were any clues. They found Maitrese's ATM card, checkbook, and cell phone all things the arresting officers hadn't noted in their reports. They also found journals, 
and these journals revealed that my trees had been sleep-deprived for up to five days and could have been suffering a bipolar episode the night she was arrested. That same day, Mitrice's father, Michael, goes into the Lost Hills department. He wants to know who Mitrice called when she was at the station that night. So, jail staff looked over her booking slip and saw that she was given the opportunity to make four calls, but she only completed one call. That was to her great-grandmother, Mildred. But Michael was really surprised by this. Mildred says she hadn't received any calls from the jail. She even checked with her phone company to see if any had come in. And according to them, none had. The next day, Mitrice's family and their attorney held a press conference, where they asked for the public's assistance in finding Mitrice. They also discussed how poor they believed that the sheriff's department was handling this, and reiterated their negligence for releasing her without a car, cell phone, or money. They said this, quote, led directly to the missing status of Mitrice. Now, over these few days, there were some more searches for my trees. They searched by air, they had dogs, horses, ATVs, and there was still no sign of her. Then, on September 28th, investigators met with Latisse. If you don't remember from part one, that's my Therese's mom. Now, it seems like in this meeting, all Latisse wanted to do was review my Therese's arrest report, and they wouldn't let her do that. This led directly to September 30th. Latisse and her attorney held another press conference. They discussed a lot of the things that they discussed before, the department's failure to evaluate and diagnose Matrice's mental state, and this time they made a public demand to see the arrest report. The next day, the Lost Hills Department did finally release that arrest report to Matrice's parents. But according to Latisse and Michael, the report was, quote, visibly altered and whitened out. They also claimed that it contained some discrepancies. And honestly, one discrepancy that, in my opinion, was pretty big. In the report, it stated that Mitrice didn't have any tattoos, but Mitrice did in fact have two tattoos, one on her neck and one on her lower abdomen. It may seem small, but that's something big when you're looking for a missing person. And unfortunately, that report left Latisse and Michael with more questions than answers. Now, Mitrice's family pushing for answers really did seem to move the needle a bit. Less than a week later, the Board of Supervisors, the organization that oversees police departments, requested that the Los Angeles County Sheriff, Lee Baca, review a number of issues, including how Mitrice's release was handled. Basically, the Lost Hills Department just kept saying that they didn't do anything wrong. They said she was completely fine when she was in jail. One spokesperson told the media that Mitrice, quote, exhibited no signs of mental incapacitation whatsoever. In the end, by early November, Sheriff Baca issued a report to the Board of Supervisors, and he basically said that the Lost Hills Department followed current policy and procedures. Baca did go into a little bit more detail. He explained that Mitrice didn't have a prior criminal history, or any warrants, so by 12.30am, there was no legal basis to hold her. He also brings up the exact policy in the station jail manual. It states, quote, it is the policy of the department to release misdemeanor prisoners in a manner prescribed by law, as soon as such person may be reasonably and safely released. Baca said it wasn't practical or legal for the department to hold Mitrice. He also noted that prior to her release, Mitrice was offered the chance to stay in a private jail cell and sleep until morning. But as we know, Mitrice left on her own accord. 
Baca went on to further explain that people with mental illnesses are handled on a case-by-case basis. In Mitrice's case, she did fill out an arresty medical screening form during booking. Apparently, this form asks if she has any medical issues or psychological impairments, and Mitrice said no to both of these questions. Baca says that because of her answers, the jailer had no idea that anything was going on with Mitrice's mental health. In the end, Baca's letter cleared his department of all wrongdoing. And of course, this letter didn't sit well with Mitrice's family. Michael made a public statement that ended with, quote, We are tired of being lied to and misled by the sheriff's department. I believe that someone at the Malibu Lost Hill Sheriff's Department had something to do with my daughter's disappearance, and this report only confirms it for me. Now, of course, I also wanted to ask Dr. Hampton how she felt about the way Mitrice's arrest and release were handled given her experience. So what they're supposed to do, according to Welfare and Institution Code 5150, is that they should have taken her to the hospital. They should have taken her in for a psychiatric evaluation so that a professional could determine what was going on with her. Bottom line, that's what should have happened. Um, a lot of people think that law enforcement officers actually 5150 individuals, and that's not the case. The law is that they recommend for a 5150. They are not qualified, nor do they have the education to ascertain whether or not someone has a mental health issue. But because they're the, you know, the first line of, uh, the, you know, the, because they're the gatekeepers, they begin to believe that they have the power to determine whether or not someone has, or, you know, or the, the skills to determine whether or not someone should be on a 5150. But they don't. It, their job is to only recommend. What happens is when they take individuals to the hospital, they sometimes the individuals let go. They, they, they come in, they get evaluated and the, you know, the professionals have to release them because, and I, and I worked many years at, at a, at a hospital. My, I specialize by the way, in chronic mental illness. So that would be schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Those types of things happen to be my specialty. And I worked in hospital settings. There are times when I was involved, you know, with, you know, individual, individuals were brought in by law enforcement and we had to let them go, even though we didn't want to, because we have to be in adherence to the law. However, we hold them long enough to maybe we could reach out to family. Maybe we can medicate them, you know, before they're released. We have buses that will take them places. We don't just release them um, in the middle of the night if, or not anywhere, really. There has to be a, there, there has to be, we have to know what's going to happen to them next. Law enforcement often gets angry because the person isn't kept in the hospital. There's not even enough, enough beds to keep every single individual in the hospital um, even if we wanted to keep them, or even if we could keep them, um, the law dictates whether or not we can keep them or not. You can walk around, you know, saying that you're from Mars, and as long as you're not going to harm anyone, harm yourself, and you are able to provide for yourself, we can't keep you. But that, but professionals have to make that determination. And uh, the easiest thing is that we just call the family and ask them, hey, we can't keep them in the hospital. Can someone come and get them? We'll hold them until until you get here, because we are allowed to keep them for 72 hours. So had they taken her to the hospital like they should have, she would have gotten evaluated. Honestly, she probably would have been medicated. They would have called her parents and they would have taken her home. She probably is not one who would have been hospitalized, but she would not have just been released to the streets, you know, in cognitive, you know, mentally impaired. That wouldn't have happened. 
This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by Quince. Quince has transformed how I shop. I'm not gonna lie, I don't love paying extravagant prices for things that don't last. But imagine upgrading your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. They offer things like a 100% Mongolian cashmere sweater for $50, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part is all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Basically what they do is partner with the top factories. That cuts out the cost of the middleman. That way they can pass on the savings to us. And what I really love is that Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I have a ton of stuff from Quince. Right now I'm really on a mission to just have some great basics in my closet. So I picked up a lot of t-shirts, some tank tops, and I definitely got a 100% mulberry silk pillowcase. It is absolutely worth it. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by June's Journey. Everyone loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. In this game, you step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of your sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. I've been playing June's Journey for a long time. And yes, I love uncovering hidden objects in these really fun scenes, but I also like putting together the pieces of this puzzle. I've said it before and I'll say it again, one of my favorite parts of playing June's Journey is chatting and playing with or against, if I'm honest, usually I like playing against other players by joining a detective club. And if that's not enough for you, you can join a detective league to put your skills to the test. I am also deep into building my island. And I mean deep, you guys. I've been playing for a very long time and it's just really fun to see it grow. I usually find myself playing on little breaks during the day or at night before I go to bed. If you like games, if you like solving mysteries, I really think you're gonna like June's Journey. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. At this point, the relationship between Mitrice's family and law enforcement was more tense than ever. But the search for Mitrice continued. On December 11th, Sheriff Baca and several department executives met with Michael. At this meeting, they discussed a number of issues, including whether the county sheriff's department could do more to search for Mitrice. And it seems like something in this meeting worked, because after, Baca assigned a team of department homicide investigators to support the LAPD. They followed up on leads, reported sightings, and executed additional search and rescue operations. It seems like one of the biggest searches came on January 9th, 2010. There were 400 people, search dogs, horses, and air support, and the search focus did seem a little different this time. By this point, LAPD experts said that Mitrice may have been suffering from a mental health illness when she disappeared, and because of that, they tried to search in areas that, quote, might attract someone who suffered from a mental illness. Now, if we're just cutting to the chase, they were concerned that Mitrice might have completed suicide. So they looked in areas below cliffs, drainage areas, pools and dam areas, and more. 
but again, like the other searches, there was just no sign of my trees. In early 2010, both of my trees' parents filed claims against the county. They cited everything that we talked about before. They believed that they were negligent in releasing my trees. The Los Angeles Times reported that Michael and Latisse both thought that there were just more facts to uncover about what happened that night, and they believed that they had to take a drastic step to get those answers. And there were still more questions. Her parents were also fighting for the video footage of Mitrice's arrest. At first, the department didn't respond. Then, about a month after Mitrice disappeared, they told the media the videos didn't exist. A few months after that, Captain Martin with the Lost Hills Department admitted that he had the footage. It was in the drawer of his desk. And it would take another three months before her family was allowed to see the footage. And what was on there was pretty shocking. Latisse would later tell LA Magazine that Maitrice, quote, appeared agitated and distressed. She also said that Maitrice appeared to be clutching the screen of the holding pen and rocking from side to side, as well as pulling at her hair and trying to get into the fetal position face down on a concrete bench. And it only gets worse. Latisse said that the video footage was edited. She says that at one part of the video, Maitrice was holding a piece of paper, and in the next frame, that paper was crumpled up on the floor. The family wants to know why it was edited. Now, because of all these issues, Mitrice's family reached out to Congresswoman Maxine Walters for help. She called for an FBI investigation into whether sheriff's deputies violated Mitrice's civil rights when they released her. A spokesperson for the FBI later told The Patch that the Bureau did consider the request at first, but based on the information they had at the time, they decided not to open an investigation. It was another roadblock, but Mitrice's family didn't give up. In June, Latisse filed a lawsuit against the County of Los Angeles and several sheriff's officials. She was suing them for wrongful death and negligence. Latisse told HLN that authorities had not been forthcoming with her. Basically, filing the suit was the only way she knew how to get them to come clean. And soon, Mitrice's father Michael filed a similar lawsuit. Again, OIR looked at this and decided that Lost Hills didn't do anything wrong. Now, some people have a huge problem with this, because while OIR did review available reports and audio and video, they did not conduct any interviews of the deputies at the station or the jailer who had actual contact with Mitrice. Luckily, just one month after this report was completed, investigators would get their biggest lead yet. On the afternoon of August 9th, 2010, park rangers were assigned to search through the remnants of a former marijuana farm in Dark Canyon. This is an extremely remote area near Montanito. The terrain has been described as incredibly treacherous, and there are no trails or footpaths on the side of the canyon. At the bottom, it's just a creek filled with boulders. After making sure the farm was not being used, they followed the creek downstream. Now, to get around these massive boulders, they had to go around 60 feet upslope from the creek bed, and it was there that they found a skull and a few other bones. At around 1 p.m., the rangers called the State Parks Department, and based on the location, they believed that the remains could belong to my trees. By 1.30, they were setting up a command post. Now, we don't really know why, but Lost Hills didn't notify LAPD until 2.45 p.m., from there, two homicide detectives were then dispatched to the station. 
and they had to come by helicopter, who would pick them up and airlift them to the canyon. Again, that's how remote this area is. Lost Hills then notified the coroner at 2.58 p.m., and the reason I'm being so specific about these times is because this lapse is against the state penal code. That code says members of law enforcement are supposed to notify the coroner as soon as they find human remains. But for some reason in this case, the coroner wasn't notified for about three hours after the remains were found by the rangers. Now, of course, once they were alerted, Assistant Chief Coroner Ed Winter and his team showed up at the command post. Here, they waited to be airlifted to the scene. But that never happened. Instead, the team was told to go back to the Lost Hill Station, where a police helicopter would eventually pick them up. Before leaving, Assistant Chief Winter and police officials discovered how they would recover Mitrice's remains. Winter would later tell the Los Angeles Times that at this point, all he knew was that a skull and possibly a few other bones had been found. With that knowledge, Winter told sheriff's officials that they could move the bones only after coroner's officials reviewed photos of the scene and gave them clearance. Now, while Winter and his team went to the Lost Hills station to wait for a helicopter, the two homicide detectives and a search and rescue team arrived at the canyon. They started looking over the scene. They found the skull, which still had hair attached to it, and more hair was found scattered nearby. There was also an earring and bits of something metallic tangled within the hair. Mitrice's jeans, bra, and belt were all recovered. But we get some conflicting information here. The autopsy report says that Mitrice's clothing was found around 100 feet away from her body. But LA Magazine reported that Mitrice's jeans and bra were found 600 feet down the canyon in the creek while her belt was found 100 feet downstream, hanging on vines. So, of course, I asked Dr. Hampton if she could clear this up for us. So, I, to be honest, as far as the ex exact, the distances, I, I don't know which one is correct. The belt, I, the belt, though, I, do, I am almost certain was hanging. Um, I've heard that from our, um, the forensic, uh, uh, anthropologist that worked with us on the case, and she actually did see the photographs um, from the that were taken at the scene. Um, and the clothing were not they, the clothing were not fall, found all in one place. They were scattered um, distances apart. I just don't know, you know, the exact feet, the exact distance. I do believe that the first thing was found. Whatever was first found was a hundred feet from her, which may have been the belt. So, so one of the problems with the misinformation is that, you know, if you've read the two OIR reports, you will see so much internal inconsistencies. Um, everything about her case is confusing. So it's hard to like really understand what actually happened because the stories changed from the time she went missing, you know, onward. So whether it was 100 feet or 600 feet, I don't really know. Because honestly, we were first told that there was a bunch of clothes in one location. It wasn't until after we got our um, forensic um, anthropologist out there that we learned, no, these clothing were not found all bundled together. They were found throughout the, the creek bed. The jeans and belt showed no signs of damage, from animals or the elements. Mitrice's two shirts, underwear, socks, and shoes were never recovered. So let's talk about Mitrice's skeletal remains. 
When investigators moved some leaves and debris from near Mitrice's skull, they found the majority of a skeletonized and partially mummified naked body. While most of the remains were found near Mitrice's skull, her right leg was about two yards upslope from her body, and it didn't appear like an animal had dragged her leg to that location. Investigators say they weren't sure how it got there. Sheriff's officials do notify Assistant Chief Winter that investigators found these remains, and he immediately told them not to touch them. Officials even replied back, saying that they wouldn't. But for some reason, minutes later, Winter heard that Mitrice's remains were being put into the helicopter, and he couldn't believe what he was hearing. This was completely against the penal code, which states a body, quote, shall not be disturbed or moved from the position or place of death without the permission of the coroner. Now, when I first got to this part of Mitrice's case, I thought maybe this kind of thing happens all the time. But Winter would later tell the LA Times that he couldn't recall a case where a police agency moved remains without a coroner's approval. And this happened so fast. They were done recovering Mitrice's remains within 21 minutes. All of the recovered bones were placed on plastic sheeting, which was then put into a body bag. Mitrice's clothing was also placed in the body bag, but outside the plastic. Her remains were then flown into the station. Now, at this point, the coroner's office hadn't even made it into the canyon to see what the remains looked like prior to their removal. It wouldn't be until the next day, August 10th, that the coroner's team was taken by helicopter into the canyon. But at that point, they couldn't even locate the site where Mitrice's remains had been found. And the team wouldn't even get back out to the area for more than two weeks. But of course, everything else is still in progress. So on August 11th, a forensic anthropologist was brought in to look over Mitrice's remains. They discovered that multiple bones were still missing, including multiple vertebrae, a rib, and her hyoid bone. The anthropologist also specifically noted that there didn't appear to be any damage from animals on the bones. There were no fractures either, which rules out the possibility that Mitrice fell to the location she was found. But that's really all they could rule out. Now, Latisse was pretty shocked by where Mitrice was found. She doubts Mitrice would walk into the area. She said, quote, One thing I know about my daughter, she is not a nature young lady. On her own, that is not a place she would wander up to. After an autopsy, both a cause and manner of death couldn't be determined. On August 12th, authorities held a press conference, where they publicly confirmed the remains found were Mitrice's. When asked if foul play could be involved, Sheriff Baca said, quote, We have no indication of a homicide at this point. I don't believe that the remains are capable of telling us a story that would lead to that possibility and I would ask that the coroner's office continually work in that regard to see if there was any foul play. Basically, at this point, Mitrice's case was left open, and the investigation did continue, but it slowed down significantly. Law enforcement did start coming up with theories about what they thought may have happened to Mitrice, anaphylactic shock from poison oak or a rattlesnake bite, but people were quick to point out that both of those things are incredibly rare causes of death in California, and neither of those theories explain why Mitrice's body was found naked, though one member of law enforcement suggested that maybe animals had removed her clothing. So let's explore that possibility. Animals would have had to take off Mitrice's shoes and socks, unbuckle her belt, take the belt off her jeans, 
then unzip and remove Mitrice's jeans and her underwear, as well as unhook her bra and get it out from under her. The animals would then have to carry the jeans and bra to the creek, and then hang her belt on the vines. Then they would have to eat or somehow get rid of Mitrice's shirts, underwear, socks, and shoes. Now, obviously, I'm not an expert on any of this, but for me and a lot of other people, this math just isn't mathing. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On August 20th, forensic anthropologist Clea Koff, co-founder of the Missing Persons Identification Resource Center, examined Mitrice's remains on behalf of her family. Clea later told LA Magazine that there was something that stood out to her. Mitrice's left arm was mummified and tightly flexed, as if she'd been saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Clea says the flexing could not have been caused by the environment where she was found. There was nothing to hold Mitrice's arm in such a position. She said it was defying gravity. And Clea can explain this. She believes Mitrice's arm was held in place, maybe by a sheet or some other type of wrapping, and that she was in a different environment while mummification set in. And that led to another question. Clea wanted to know how long Mitrice had been in the canyon, and where she had been before then. Clea further found that there was no human tissue on any of Mitrice's clothing. This led her to conclude that the clothing was not removed from Mitrice's body after the onset of mummification and or decomposition, meaning her clothes had to have come off before her body got into the canyon. Now, after examining Mitrice's remains, Clea dug deeper. She wanted to look into everything the coroner's office had done to investigate, and she immediately had some concerns. Clea found that the hair on Mitrice's skull wasn't compared to the hair found scattered near her remains. Because of that, no one really knows if that scattered hair was actually Mitrice's. Also, the items found scattered in her hair, those metallic fragments and an earring, which Mitrice was not wearing when she was arrested, by the way, weren't sent off for testing. And again, without testing, no one can say for sure that those were Mitrice's. Mitrice's pubic hair also wasn't tested for semen, foreign fibers, or foreign hair. Neither was her bra, jeans, or belt. LA Magazine further reported that the coroner didn't even know where Mitrice's clothing was for weeks. Clea ended up finding it wadded up inside of Mitrice's body bag. And there was another huge piece of evidence that was never tested. The bug casings on Mitrice's body were not examined to see if the flies had hatched, or to see if they were even from the same environment Mitrice's remains were found in. Dirt and leaves found around Mitrice weren't tested for blood either. Clea further noted that a craniotomy to look for evidence of trauma was not performed on Mitrice's skull. And as I mentioned, Mitrice's hyoid bone, a neck bone that can show evidence of strangling, was never recovered. This was disturbing to Clea, because when she looked at Mitrice's teeth, she noticed that they were slightly pink, which is a possible sign of strangulation. When I asked Dr. Hampton to confirm whether or not the hyoid bone had been found, she expressed some concerns as well. No, it was not. 
let me say this. I'm going to say this. Um, I'm going to, I, I stand by that. No, it was not. However, we're not privy to information. Um, you know, there got to be a certain point where the law enforcement was hiding the details. So it has never been reported that it was discovered. The coroner's never acknowledged that it was uh, recovered. So I would, I can just say, no, we've never been told that it was recovered. Jumping back to Clea, she determined that there were too many unanswered questions to conclude that Maitrese wasn't murdered. She told LA Magazine that usually the default would be to consider Maitrese's death a homicide, at least until they could rule it out. But that's not what happened with Maitrese. It seems like the department immediately said foul play had not been involved, and Clea's findings only proved to Maitrese's family that the investigation into her death was not thorough. On August 25th, 16 days after Maitrese's remains were located, the coroner's team was finally able to go into the canyon and look around. While there, they discovered an additional nine bones belonging to Maitrese. None of the bones showed any evidence of trauma or animal activity. But again, it was incredibly clear that the investigation into Maitrese's death has been mishandled by the sheriff's department. And as the months passed, it wasn't just Dr. Hampton and Maitrese's family that had concerns. Assistant Chief Coroner Winter also grew more and more frustrated with law enforcement. In early November, he decided to go to the LA Times about his concerns. He said the department's removal of Maitrese's remains was possibly illegal and may have compromised his investigation. He explained how the department had gone against his orders and removed Maitrese's remains without the coroner's office ever visiting the scene. In response to Winter's claims, Captain Dave Smith told the Times that poor phone and radio reception kept coroner instructions from reaching investigators at the scene. He said they decided to recover the remains because it was starting to get dark out, and they were worried about leaving them out overnight where animals could get to them. And again, another investigation was launched, and they had the same conclusion. OIR cleared Lost Hills and LAPD of any wrongdoing. On November 6, days after Assistant Chief Coroner spoke to the Times, Sheriff Baca and a team of deputies led Latisse, Dr. Hampton, Clea Koff, and others to the location where Mitrice's body was found. This was supposed to be a really special day. They created a memorial for Mitrice. They placed sunflowers on the ground and played some Aretha Franklin music. But then someone in the group found one of Mitrice's finger bones in the dirt and leaves. So despite all these trips they made to this area, they still didn't find all of Mitrice's remains. Now, as you can imagine, this was extremely upsetting to Mitrice's loved ones, and just another glaring example of how poorly this investigation was being handled. A little over a month later, on December 20th, Latisse held another press conference. This time, she asked that Mitrice's remains be exhumed and examined by the FBI. Their hope was to finally get a cause of death. Latisse was joined by Clea Koff, who pointed out the many issues with the investigation. Now, while these findings were pretty gruesome, Latisse wanted people to understand exactly why she was pushing for Mitrice's case to be looked at as a homicide. Latisse said, quote, I am not a scientist, but I am a mother who knew the very essence of her daughter, and I believe my daughter was murdered. I believe she was sexually assaulted. And my issue, based on what I know, what has just been shared with you, is that there has been no criminal analysis to either prove or disprove my concerns. 
and it concerns me even more that there appears not to be a motivation to find out what happened to my daughter. Now, after this, the sheriff's department did respond. They told the patch that they were basically supportive of Maitreese's family and willing to do anything to figure out what happened to Maitreese. But they were also extremely honest. They said that may never happen, but Maitreese's case would remain open. And Latisse didn't give up. On December 29th, she met with Sheriff Baca to discuss exhuming Maitreese's body. LA Magazine reported that during this meeting, Baca told Latisse that he reached out to the FBI and that they agreed to do this. Baca also said that he was disappointed in the coroner's, quote, lack of sensitivity about this evidence, and he said that he might reconsider Maitreese's cause of death, stating, quote, I've always felt that it should have been treated from the offset as a possible homicide. And I really want to emphasize this. I think in true crime, we're really easy and fast to discount these families. Of course, when you're close to a case like this, there are a lot of emotions. But that emotion doesn't always dissolve logic. So having someone from law enforcement say, yes, I think that this should have been treated as a possible homicide also, is a big deal. But in the end, that exhumation didn't happen. When Baca was asked why, he said that the FBI was no longer able to help them. So LA Magazine reaches out to the FBI, and they say that they never agreed to do it in the first place. We've got two agencies pointing fingers at each other. Meanwhile, the coroner's office was still just trying to locate the rest of Maitreese's remains. And there were indeed more remains. In February, they recovered eight more bones. At this point, they'd recovered more than 90% of Maitreese's remains. Three months later in May, Latisse filed another lawsuit against LA County, alleging negligence and both intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress. In this lawsuit, Latisse talks about how deputies improperly removed Maitreese's remains. She also revealed that that location that she, Dr. Hampton, Clea Koff, and others visited on November 6th was not the actual location where Maitreese's body had been found. They'd been taken to the wrong location. Which is one, absolutely terrible, and two, should have expanded the overall search for Maitreese's remains since some of her bones were found there. And Latisse just keeps continuing to put pressure on law enforcement. She wants Maitreese's remains exhumed. And finally, in July, her request was granted. But after all that time and effort, they still couldn't determine Maitreese's cause of death. The following month, Latisse and Michael reached an agreement to settle their lawsuits. Michael told the LA Times that he didn't want to settle. He wanted to take this case to trial, where more evidence would have to come out. But in the end, he took his attorney's advice and agreed to settle. But Michael said he would continue to speak out against the department's handling of Maitreese's case. He said he still hasn't received justice, because his daughter's killer is still out there. While Michael and Latisse kept fighting, the next few years were pretty quiet. But then, in 2014, Lee Baca resigned as sheriff of Los Angeles County. This is because of a growing obstruction scandal. Now, this was unrelated to Maitreese's death. It was mostly about unprovoked beatings of inmates and subsequent cover-ups. Now, this scandal would lead to the arrest of at least 10 members of the department, including Lee Baca himself. 
eventually Baca would be found guilty on felony counts of conspiracy to obstruct justice, obstruction of justice, and lying to federal investigators. He was sentenced to three years in prison. Now, while this scandal was unrelated to Mitrice's case, it of course led many people to re-question his involvement. In 2019, Mitrice's family got another glimmer of hope that something would be done. This is when Alex Villanueva took over as sheriff. He met with Mitrice's loved ones and told them that the department had changed their procedures since Mitrice's death. With the changes, if someone is acting strangely prior to their arrest, they will be evaluated by a mental health team, regardless of how they're acting at the station. It also became policy to make sure that people were leaving the jail with their cell phones and other belongings, and the department got rid of their waiting period for taking missing person reports for adults. Now, Mitrice's family becomes really hopeful at this point. They were hoping that finally, after all these years, there would be a full investigation into Mitrice's death. That hope became even stronger after Sheriff Villanueva attended a church memorial service marking the 10-year anniversary of Mitrice's death. While there, he announced that he wanted to, quote, pursue the truth and get to the bottom of what happened. He said he wanted to reassess the entire case from the beginning. They would go back and redo the entire investigation. So of course, Mitrice's family is really excited about this. After 10 years, they were finally getting somewhere. But just 10 days later, Mitrice's family's hope was shattered. Villanueva backtracked his statements. He basically came out and said he only planned on rereading the file. He wasn't going to rework it. Villanueva argued that Mitrice's case had already been looked into by multiple departments. But Dr. Hampton and others argued that this was done by a corrupt sheriff's administration and that there was also evidence that the now-retired people at the department had lied. So, Mitrice's loved ones continued fighting. On December 21st, 2021, the Board of Supervisors reinstated a $10,000 reward for information regarding Mitrice's case. Following this announcement, authorities said that her case remained open, but there weren't any new leads. Then, three months later, that reward was doubled to 20000 the board said they hope the reward will lead to the apprehension and conviction of those responsible for Mitrice's, quote, suspicious disappearance and heinous death. And that's pretty much where the case is today. So what happened to Mitrice Richardson? Well, of course, we know that Mitrice was experiencing some type of mental health crisis, which leads some to believe she may have been in a tragic accident or completed suicide but many who knew her said that she was met with foul play due to how her remains and clothing were found. Some suspect law enforcement may have been involved, or at least no more than they're saying. Or at least no more than they're saying. Someone killed her. Somebody's out there. And no matter who it is, they need to be picked up. I, I can have my suspicions, but I won't. I would never 100% say that it was law enforcement because I don't know that. I can have my gut instinct. But to the extent that they are not um, properly evaluating, you know, her, her case or investigating her case, um, they're allowing a murderer to be out there, be it somebody from the department or, or, or a private citizen. And that's problematic. You would think that they would spend a lot of time if they're so confident and comfortable that it was not one of their own and that these are all good men, you would think that they would spend a lot of time 
um, invest or any time investigating her case. Which brings me right to our call to action. I I think one of the one of the things Lee Baca told me um, is that my Teresa's case is only going to be solved um, when someone comes forward. So what I think needs to happen is we just need to continue to have her story out there. I think podcasts like yours and um, people spreading the word. It's been 13 years. There are people who weren't even old enough to really be following her story who now are, you know, in their twenties or, you know, and, and are just hearing about her story for the first time. My Teresa's loved ones are still fighting for justice. They want an investigation into the handling of my Teresa's arrest and release. They want the department to take an interest in solving my Teresa's case, which is still open. My Teresa's loved ones deserve all those things. They've been waiting for way too long. As a reminder, 24-year-old Maitrese Richardson was released from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, Malibu slash Lost Hills Station at 12.38 a.m. on September 17, 2009. Six hours later, Maitrese was seen five miles south in the backyard of a Cold Canyon Road home. This is the last confirmed sighting we have of Maitrese. On August 9th, 2010, the majority of Maitrese's remains were discovered in a creek in Dark Canyon, an area a few miles away from where she was last seen. Maitrese's case is still open. Anyone with information is asked to call the LAPD at 213-486-6900. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney, and is a Voices for Justice media original. This episode contains writing and research assistance by Haley Gray. If you love what we do here, please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the show in your podcast player. It helps us and helps more people find these cases in need of justice. Welcome to the secret after show. The door is open, the air is on, and the dogs are in here this time. Uh, Popcorn is sleeping in his bed. Marley just, I had to to bend. Um, Marley is settled underneath a extra computer chair in the corner. All is well in the studio.
So let's talk about this case. It's just, it's one of those cases where I think you feel so much for the family. There's obviously something weird going on with law enforcement. You know, there's um, some missteps. You know, the family going out there and Dr. Hampton and, and Clea Koff finding additional bones that, you know, in a perfect world, really in a thorough sweep of that area should have been found the first time. So I understand why there are so many confusing and concerning elements to this story, and I just hope that these episodes can help. Um, There has certainly been some misinformation out there. I know it's a more popular case, but Maitreese still needs justice. Her loved ones still need justice. Dr. Hampton spoke about this case like it happened yesterday. Um, These things are still really fresh for the people who knew Maitreese, and I just hope that these episodes can do something to help move that needle. Um, I also want to say another thank you to Dr. Hampton, who was an absolute wealth of knowledge in this case. So let's get to our segment of hope, which is, again, another terrible subject we're talking about that does have some type of silver lining. This one is a little bit different, but let's just dig in. So this is from apnews.com, and the headline reads, quote, Parenting advice YouTuber Ruby Frank charged with aggravated child abuse of two of her six children. Now, if you guys don't know, um, Eight Passengers was a huge YouTube channel. I think it had 2.3 million subscribers, which is pretty big. Um, it's close to, I mean, under what Kendall Ray has now, but again, pretty big. Um, so let me just read more from the article. A Utah woman who gave online parenting advice via a once popular YouTube channel was charged Friday with six six felony counts of aggravated child abuse after two of her six children were found abused and malnourished, authorities said. So this article came out, as always, a few days before this episode. This is September 1st, 2023. It goes on to read... Ruby Frank, whose now defunct channel Eat Passengers chronicled her family life, was arrested Wednesday night in the southern Utah city of Ivins. She was taken into custody at the home of Jody Hildebrand, who owns a counseling business that says she teaches people to improve their lives by being honest, responsible, and humble. Hildebrandt was also arrested Wednesday and faces the same six abuse charges. And it's really sad, like, how this came to be. Um, So, again, from the article, Wednesday morning, Frank's son climbed out of a window in Hildebrandt's residence. So, they were at the residence of this counselor, this business partner of the mom. Um, He climbed out of the window in Hildebrandt's residence and ran to a neighbor's house asking for food and water. The neighbor saw duct tape on the boy's ankles and wrists and called law enforcement. Now, the thing is, the reason I put this as the segment of hope is because the oldest daughter has come out on Instagram and basically praised um, the police department for doing this. She says that she and several others have been calling police and been calling Child Protective Services for years, trying to get the kids removed. Now, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail. I very much feel like this is, well, I, this is their story to tell. Um, so I don't want to sit there and further victimize or traumatize these kids. Um, but this story is huge. It's no secret what has happened. And like I said, I wanted to in- include it in the segment of hope because I don't know about everybody else out there, but I am certainly someone who has 
been a part of a situation where you call DCS several times, um, you know, where DCS is called on your family, family several times. That happened to me, obviously, as you guys know. Um, and action is not taken. And I can say that working as a part of that system or within that system, whatever you want to call it, when I worked with the kids in foster care, um, you know, there, there was a huge conversation uh, between these agencies about the reluctance in removing children from their families. I know specifically in Arizona, they really, really, really try to keep the families together. And unfortunately, in so many cases, that is just not what is best for these kids. And I think that, that the, this is obviously one of these cases, just as I experienced growing up. Um, so I think the silver lining here is that action was finally taken. Now, I wish it didn't have to take that poor child climbing out of a window um, and, you know, begging for help. But in the end, that kid is a freaking hero in my eyes and uh, really saved their siblings. And before I get too emotional, um, and I cry. I just want to say that's why this is part of the segment of hope. Um, also, that hopefully this will cease whatever business this woman and her business partner where these kids were found or staying um, from doing any further business. I mean, um, in my experience, if, if that person, or my not my experience, my opinion, if that person knew that those kids were tied up in her home or whatever, which I assume that they did, um, they shouldn't be counseling anyone on anything. So um, let's hope that this puts a cease to all operations of those people and also draws a huge spotlight on family channels. I think that that's another, you know, silver lining and why I wanted it to be a part of the segment, segment of hope also is because we really need to take a look at posting kids online in general and family channels. If anyone is on TikTok, which I, I know some of you are, okay? Some of you are on TikTok. So um, I'm sure that you are well aware of some of the incidents on there with major creators who show their kids very often. And it is such a dark subject that um, I don't want to get into it here. And honestly, this is the after show. It's already running really long, so I won't get into it here. Um, but like I said on Instagram, I... I would love to cover this subject. I think it needs to be talked about more. I think, you know, there are obviously a lot of people who just enjoy family content for whatever reason, a variety of good reasons that aren't nefarious. Um, but, you know, when these channels and, and this eight passengers channel was not the only one, if you look at like Daddy 05, that's the first one that comes to mind. Um, it's very clear that there's an audience that really, for lack of a better word, kind of gets off or gets high off of whatever, gets some type of enjoy or thrill of seeing kids being outright abused, of seeing them being punished. Um, so it is definitely a larger conversation to be had that I think is, thank goodness, being had um, in social media, by influencers. You know, people are really taking a second look at these family channels and, uh, you know, asking what it's all about. Why do they exist? And what harm is it doing to the kids? I actually just, um, on my personal inst I share so much on Instagram. On my personal Instagram, I, um, uh, I posted about, gosh, I forget which state it is now. I think it was like Connecticut or something. Um, but don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. There was one state, um, that changed the way 
that the money made by these channels is later distributed to children. And more and more, I think we're going to see more legislation around treating these kids who generate income through monetized videos or whatever, audio, whatever it might be, um, you know, better protections for them and their work and better protections to make sure that their money isn't all gone by the time they turn 18, which has been a, a problem in the entertainment industry overall for Years and years and years. So that is our segment of hope. Um, it appears that these kids have gotten away from the abuse. They are now in child protective custody. And I hope that they are placed with um, very loving people who can help them heal. And I just support whatever that journey looks like for them. Um, but as always, thank you. I love you. And I'll talk to you next time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.